Welcome to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here in the studio with producer Ray Valencia. Hello. Good morning. We're going to go against the grain for a couple of hours here. Uh, We are going to talk about, I think this is interesting, we're going to talk about the United States uh, perhaps shifting its posture on Turkey a little bit to be a little bit less mollifying. Uh, They have issued some warnings, both in terms of doing business with sanctioned Russian businesses and also on their actions in northern Syria, although I don't think the U.S. government called out Turkey by name in that statement last night. We are going to talk about the whether uh, whether the U.S. is sending Ukraine weapons it isn't telling us about and what that would mean in the in the short term. We'll talk about whether Europe is in for one bad winter or a decade of them as signs proliferate that coming contractions here and over there might not be short. It might not be the, you know, the temporary inflation, the uh, whatever ephemeral. I forget what they were calling transitory. it. Transitory. Yes, transitory. We are, of course, going to talk about um just how many classified documents Donald Trump had at his different homes. And also we are going to talk about his lawsuit uh, against the DOJ calling for a special master to review those documents before the FBI can. Uh, The DOJ has just said, we'll respond in court. We had probable cause, et cetera. Uh, We are going to talk about Joe Biden toying with the idea of forgiving $10,000 worth of student loan debt, which, you know, $10,000 is a lot of money in a lot of contexts, but not really when it comes to student loans. I spent probably too much time this morning doing calculations about student loans and interest, because basically, if you have enough money in student loans, what happens is just you're paid... They take away a certain sum of money from you every month until eventually it's forgiven. You're never going to pay off the debt because it's going to grow too fast because of the interest on it. Right. And And so with interest rates going up, that's another problem. And so even if you have the average federal loan debt of about thirty seven thousand dollars, the average private student loan debt is about fifty four thousand dollars. But if you are looking at a 10 year loan uh, on the average federal debt at the average federal interest rate, which is I think I kept seeing four point nine nine percent. Basically, that ten thousand dollars is what you would pay in debt over that ten years. So it's going to take a chunk off your loan, but it's not going to make a big difference in anyone's life. Like it's going to make the difference between like an extra hundred dollars or not that you're paying every month. You know, I, it's just like it just feels like yet another compromise that doesn't really do very much for for very many people. Right. It, it solves a problem you know, in the short run, like my debt's a little bit lower, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't solve the problem of the cost of education, which is continuing to increase. And it's more and more competitive because Harvard and all these colleges are not getting any larger. Yeah. And a lot of secondary colleges are are charging tuitions that are as much as top tier, as top tier schools. Mm -hmm. So it's extremely competitive. And $10,000 is just like a little bit off the top. It just, yeah, it does feel, it feels like a, it just feels like a pretty empty gesture. It's in an the, empty in the face gesture of all of these forces. you don't have a solution to the underlying drivers of the problem, which is the competitiveness in education, trying to, you know, get into those top schools. And then once you get there, the cost, the tuition expense, which is continuing to increase. Mm-hmm. So we're going to talk about that a little bit later. We will talk about what happens to the waste generated by the extraction industries uh, at work here and around the world. We will check in on the fight over a lithium mine at Backer Pass in Nevada. Uh, We will talk about the Trump versus McConnell rift 
and uh, and take a look at what goings on, uh, what is going on in Florida, where I hadn't realized that Matt Gates had uh, challengers to his seat. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I mean, DeSantis is running unopposed. Rubio is running unopposed. Uh, so it's mo- most eyes are on the, the Democratic primaries there. But who knows? Maybe a couple of uh, incumbents could get taken out. I don't know that. I don't know that that's likely. I know absolutely not. nothing I don't know about, about Charlie Crist right. making it either, but who knows? <laughs> uh, the other big headline today was this uh, Twitter whistleblower. This guy, uh, Peter Zatko, who used to go by the hacker name Mudge, who is apparently in 1998, he'd already testified before Congress once in 1998 to talk about like cybersecurity just in general, like the era of hackers and, and those movies. He had been the head of security for Twitter. And he last month uh, blew the whistle, sent a disclosure to Congress and to federal agencies alleging that Twitter has very serious security problems that pose a threat to its own users' personal information, to company shareholders, to national security, and to democracy. Uh, CNN and The Washington Post got a hold of the disclosure that says Twitter is reckless with its data. Uh, Too many staff can access the platform's central controls and the most sensitive information there without adequate oversight. It says senior executives have been trying to cover up Twitter's serious vulnerabilities, including misleading regulators about these vulnerabilities that could allow hacking, spying, and disinformation campaigns, and that one or more current employees might be working for a foreign intelligence service. Which is the most, and I think that would, I mean, I don't know, but certainly there have been allegations that Saudi Arabia in particular has has hacked into Twitter or has an in at Twitter and is using that data to track down uh, dissidents. Um, so Zatko says Twitter doesn't also reliably delete users' data after they cancel their accounts, sometimes because the company has just lost track of it. Uh, and again, misleads regulators about whether it deletes the data that it is supposed to, and that Twitter executives don't have the resources to understand the true number of bots on the platform and are not motivated to do so. And so Zatko was fired not too long ago. He says he was fired for trying repeatedly to address these issues. Twitter, of course, says he was fired for poor performance. Um, but, you know, what this means, especially in terms of data, you think like, OK, it's not protecting users data. Uh, you know, who who is right? Um, but of course, you have government agencies, you have heads of state, you have defense officials, you have a lot of public figures using these accounts. And that insecurity, he says, could be a national security risk. Uh, he says Twitter has dragged its feet on upgrading its server infrastructure and that the old infrastructure leaves it vulnerable to different breaches. And so, you know, uh, this is generally going to be useful to Elon Musk, I think, as he tries to get out of this $44 billion deal to buy Twitter. Um, because, of course, his he he Elon Musk, people forget. I, I think, am I losing my mind? One of the reasons he said he wanted to buy Twitter was to deal with the bot problem. Right. To clean it up and make it a, uh, you know, a reliable platform. Right. But his biggest reason for leaving or trying to leave, which he, of Delaware court, I guess, will decide if he's able to do or not, is because there are too many bots. So or I guess, maybe like, the stock price is down. Well, yeah. But what he's saying is it's it's too many bots. It's not the right, thing right. that I thought it was worth. They they And him, he, you know, he's saying they lied to me about this problem. And now you have this whistleblower saying not exactly the same thing, but saying Twitter executives have been misleading everybody about the bot issue, among other issues. It seems to me like this has been common knowledge, right? About the potential of bots, fake accounts, uh, security breaches with Twitter. Mm-hmm. 
this isn't a recent thing. Mm. Um, Elon Musk is interested in it. I don't know. It's a little strange. His lawyers say, uh, Musk's lawyers say they have subpoenaed Zacco. Mm-hmm. Zacco says, he, you know, his he says this whole deal predated Musk's interest. This is separate from Musk's interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, Musk, of course, is going to grab onto this information. They say this is very interesting. The circumstances of his departure are very interesting. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. I also, I just, I do think it is possible that all of this you know, there's the constant uh, admonition that Twitter isn't real life. And it really isn't. It's not. So are we elevating this one social media platform to more relevance than it should have? But again, it is a it is a very important conduit for information. It is a conduit for information. I look at news every morning. I have my, you know, 200 things that I follow on the news. But, wow, I don't take everything seriously. I suspect that some of my followers may be bots and you know i don't care (laughs) i don't yeah all all my followers might be bots and that's fine with me love my bots um the other interesting bit of news i actually can't believe this and i'm a little bit disappointed that i missed this news from the very end of june when a judge ordered a new trial for the two alleged ringleaders of the alleged 2020 plot to kidnap michigan governor gretchen whitmer A jury had already found two other defendants not guilty, and then it deadlocked for months on whether these two ringleaders should be found guilty of anything. And I mean, I guess it is not surprising it got buried because we talked we followed this on the show for a while saying like these guys are really presenting a pretty credible case that Mm -hmm. they were entrapped considering the guys who made all the connections Mm -hmm. were all in either informers or FBI agents. Um, So uh, an embarrassment for the FBI. Um, but now, and this is, you know, again, it is it, members of the Republican Party who latch onto this information and and make it public. Um, but the dude who was the head of the Detroit field office, this guy, Stephen Dantuono, I'm guessing that's how you say his last name. He is now head of the D.C. field office as of the end of 2021. And I mean, on one hand, if you look at his bio, he's a big white collar financial crimes guy. So D.C. would seem like the place to be. It also, though, feels very much like failing upward. And so the likes of Ted Cruz have seized on this information because uh, D'Antuono is now going to be running the FBI's investigation into January 6th or has been running the investigation into January 6th. And they are saying this shows that, of course, the FBI has become too politicized. Um, And, if you know. This is it is a very useful tool for yeah. for Ted Cruz to be able yeah, to say that. And so, yes. you know, the fact that they were not able to convict any of those Michigan dudes is a really bad sign in terms of how that whole supposed conspiracy was handled. Right. Because Whitmer was a Democratic governor and the breakup of the plot was a huge talking point after uh, the arrest of these men in 2020 about how democracy was under threat and the right was a lawless force, which is everything they like to say about Donald Trump. And now you can say, we have the same guy who tried to create a sort of PR moment for this Democratic governor and had it all fall apart, is now here uh, running the January 6th investigation. Is he going to do the same thing? And like, I don't, you know, I, it doesn't, the fact that I do think Donald Trump uh, is, is a threat, and that the right elements of the right have become lawless forces that are dangerous doesn't also mean 
that this isn't happening. You know what I mean? Like, so, yeah, Yeah. it it gives them a very convenient opportunity, uh, Republicans, that is, to suggest that all the FBI does is set them up. I think they, I think think their setups are more equal opportunity. I think they're more equal opportunity. I think more um, average people get ground up in agencies like the FBI. You know, mm-hmm. John shared his experience with the FBI. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, Trump, he's he's caught with a lot of stuff. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, the FBI may be doing some right things in his case because all these eyes are on him. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean it's not a flawed agency or that the espionage isn't a flawed act and shouldn't be. No, and certainly, you know, you would uh, you wouldn't necessarily expect the guy who's ahead of the field office that is, you know has maybe one of the most high profile failures in the last couple of years. Uh, yeah, put gets him up brought back the into the Capitol. Thing. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly, and you know it should raise some eyebrows. I think we're going to take a quick break here. I have some more stuff to say about home sales, but we'll save it for a minute because I know we have our next guest waiting. Uh, So we're going to take a break here on Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. The U.S. is signaling that it might be ready to apply more pressure to NATO ally Turkey. Washington has apparently just warned Turkish companies that they might be sanctioned for their ongoing dealings with Russia. The U.S. also expressed deep concern about attacks in northern Syria without, I think, without naming Syria outright. Regarding Ukraine, we have the EU discussing more military training for Ukrainian forces. And in the U.S., we have questions being raised about whether Washington is giving Kiev more different types of weapons than we've been letting on. Uh, In Zaporizhia, both sides of the conflict continue to accuse each other of creating a crisis, but we might be closer to the arrival of inspectors, uh, which would seem to calm things down, at least in that narrow arena. Russian law enforcement authorities said yesterday that a woman, likely a Ukrainian intelligence officer, was responsible for the assassination of Daria Dugina, the daughter of the right-wing political figure Alexander Dugin. Her dad, who was not in Dugina's car when it exploded, might have been the intended target. Uh, The uh, intelligence officer that Russian law enforcement is pointing the finger at apparently escaped overland to Estonia. Uh, An FSB spokesman added that the woman had moved into Dugina's apartment building a month earlier and surveilled her uh, with a car using different license plates. The Ukrainian government, of course, is denying any involvement. Meanwhile, the Ukrainian military estimated yesterday that 9,000 of its troops have been killed since the start of the war. Uh, This is in contrast to the Russian Defense Ministry's announcement last week that 1,351 Russian troops had died. Pentagon said around the same time that more than 80,000 Russian troops have been killed or wounded Uh, goes again to show that truth is the first casualty of war. Uh, And a senior Russian diplomat said yesterday that he does not see any chance of a negotiated settlement to this conflict, opining instead that the war is going to drag on for a long time. We are joined to break all of this down by Jim Jotris. He's a former U.S. diplomat and a former senior foreign policy advisor to the Senate Republican leadership. Jim, thanks for joining us again. Michelle, it's great to be with you again. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about uh, the U.S 
posture vis-a-vis Turkey, right? The U.S. had gotten Turkey uh, to delay its long-planned new offensive in Syria, but that delay seems to be over. We have the U.S. condemning attacks in northern Turkey uh, and also warning Turkey that its ongoing business dealings with Russia might not be tolerated for much longer. And so I wonder if you think this is an important shift in how the U.S. intends to deal with its NATO ally and whether you think we will actually start sanctioning Turkish companies. You know, it's hard to tell, Michelle. I mean, I was just listening to your your review of the big picture with Turkey and and Dugina and Ukraine and the whole Shinola show that we've got going on here. Mm -hmm. And uh, as far as Turkey goes, I mean, you know, Turkey's always been kind of a even though it was a member of NATO, it was kind of marching to its own drummer uh, even before Erdogan came on the scene. I mean, it is a big regional power in uh, in the Balkans and Middle East, uh, and and also to some extent in in Europe and the Black Sea region. And and I think there's always going to be the um, the tendency to treat it with kid gloves. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, we remember a few years ago uh, after the incident with the Turkish vessel near Gaza and the the break off of relations between Turkey and Israel, which had historically been very close regionally. Mm -hmm. um, There there was there was certainly a lot of alienation between uh, Ankara and Washington. That's why, for example, that the Armenian genocide resolution that had been held off for so many years, largely through the influence of of Israel's Mm -hmm. in the United States. Suddenly, they went through because the Israelis flipped on that and said, "Okay, fine." On second thought, it really was a genocide. Mm-hmm. So, I think there's always going to be the concern that you, know, you try to rein the Turks in, realize they're going to be behaving somewhat erratically, but always, always with a keen sense of their own national interest. Mm-hmm. The last thing I think Washington wants to do is accelerate. The, the drift of Turkey right now toward, if you will, the Eurasian camp, uh, especially when it's inside NATO and still carries a veto, for example, on admitting uh, Finland and Sweden. Yeah, that is a, that's a difficult position to be in there. And it does, you know, Turkey, Turkey has quite a lot of leverage with that and is absolutely using it. Um, the other thing that I think is is really interesting right now are some of these stories. Uh, I think it was Yahoo News uh, that first started talking about this. Politico picked it up. Uh, stories that say the U.S. is probably sending Ukraine more types of weapons than it is explicitly stating. Uh, On Friday, we learned that the U.S. has been supplying high-speed anti-radiation missiles, uh, though they, they hadn't been explicitly named in the aid that we had given Ukraine, they were just sort of lumped under this idea of providing an anti-radar capability. And so now there is speculation that explosions that we have seen in Crimea and elsewhere in Russia are the result of longer range missiles like the Army Tactical Missile System that uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan just last month said uh, would potentially provoke Russia and and instigate World War III if we were to send uh, longer range missiles like that. But, you know, there is the very real possibility that we are sending a lot more weapons than we are actually acknowledging by using sort of descriptive language instead of naming them outright. And so I wonder, one, what you guess, what you would guess is happening. But two, you know, was Jake Sullivan blowing hot air last month, or or is this a real provocation? What does it mean if we are, in fact, giving them uh, weapons with greater range and greater power? Well, I, th- I think you're right to suspect that we're probably doing a lot more uh, in, in, in the cloak of darkness 
than is being led on in public. And, you know, the, the, you know, the, to mix my metaphors a bit, yeah, these people are flicking matches around in a gasoline-soaked room. That there, There's probably a lot more going on behind the scenes in terms of the kind of weapons that we are supplying to the Ukrainians. And also, uh, something I don't think has been fully um, um, flagged for the public is how many American personnel we actually have in Ukraine now that are not disclosed, they're not wearing American uniforms, but they are essentially combatants. They're actually guiding the war on the Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. I think they were talking about primarily uh, the Americans and the British who are doing this. And, you know, there was a strike by the Russians in a place called Vinitsa a few few days ago that has really not gotten a whole lot of coverage, but all the indications are that it was kind of another version of that strike in, in Yarave in western Ukraine some weeks ago. Mm-hmm. There not only were a lot of foreign fighters killed, but probably a lot of contractors and even military personnel and intelligence personnel from Western countries. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, 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 the concern that we are digging into this thing directly a lot more than Americans really know, I think, is a very real one. And on their side, I think the Russians are walking a very fine line. Uh, in terms of how much they want to discourage this kind of thing by striking at these assets, but doing so in a low-key way that does not throw the, the, the glove down in front of, of, of NATO and say, now you've got to do something overt mm-hmm. or else your your status is at stake. I think the Russians want to continue with, with, with what is essentially a grinding uh, uh, but an inexorable path toward victory without creating that 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 red flag moment where the other side must become directly and overtly engaged. Mm -hmm. And just speaking of, you know, digging in more directly, you know, how significant would it be if the EU does decide that it's going to engage in in more mass training of Ukrainian forces as as uh, they're discussing right now? I mean, that's already happening in the UK. That has been happening in the US for a long time. But again, the the more of this that goes on, the more, uh, I don't know, the thinner the veil seems between a proxy war and a direct war. Well, I think I think the training of Ukrainian forces inside the territory of Western countries, it's a concern, but I think it's actually less of a concern mm-hmm. than things, some of the things we were just discussing where you have, uh, you know, foreign Western country assets, NATO assets in Ukraine itself. Mm-hmm. Because the fact of the matter is the training of these troops is not anywhere close to replacing the attrition that the Ukrainians are suffering in, in this war. And, you know, the sad fact is that Kiev has shown it's able to mobilize a large, large amounts of basically men that are just being thrown into the meat grinder and killed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that, you know, that's a very, very sad thing. But, you know, I guess the Russians have no choice but to oblige. <laughs> Tell me your thoughts on the assassination of Daria Dugina over the weekend. Um, There is still, you know, the Russian law enforcement have come out with what they say they think happened, which is that uh, she was targeted by Ukrainian intelligence who then escaped to Estonia. Um, But there still seems to be, you know, people sort of scratching their heads wondering, was she a target? Was her dad a target? Were they both a target? Um, If the point was to kill her father, why not move into his apartment building and surveil him? And so I wonder, you know, what you think of uh, who would have benefited from this, who would have gained from, uh, you know, this extremely high profile assassination? What kind of end game do you see in this? Well, let's remember that the Ukrainians up till now, and I think really they have no choice given how poorly things are going on the battlefield. They're, they're basically been fighting a propaganda war. You know, that's where we got the, you know, the ghost of Kiev and Snake Island and all that nonsense. Mm-hmm. 
earlier in the war. And, and it's also where we have concerns about, you know, what happened at the one Russian site where there's an explosion in Crimea, what's happening in Zaporozhye, the nuclear plant there. If they can show that they can send, uh, you know, depending on your point of view, uh, sabotage, terrorism, whatever teams in to wreak havoc, not only within Russian-held areas, but even in Russia itself— mm-hmm. That is a way of showing, hey, look, we're not dead yet. We're still fighting this war. We can strike back at the enemy. Mm-hmm. Again, that, that is a very dangerous game that they want to play there because at some point, you know, the Russians may feel feel, feel compelled to say, okay, that's it. Mm-hmm. We're going to decapitate the SBU, the Ukrainian Intelligence Service. We're going to decapitate some of the political leadership in Kiev because we're not going to put up with this sort of thing. Now, some people have even suggested, well, it's actually the Russians that did this, you know, just like mm-hmm. – have heard that Putin really is the one who blew up those apartment buildings mm-hmm. by the Second Chechen War. Um, I don't think we're ever going to really know what the truth of this is. You know, even the Russians put out, as they have, uh, this information about this uh, person, Volk, mm-hmm. and was responsible. Some people will say, well, that could have been faked. She really was involved with that. She's not really involved with the Azov Battalion, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, though, that the, 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 the likelihood that it was the Ukrainians is probably the most probable answer to it, mm-hmm. uh, and, that, and that really does put the ball back in the Russians' court. What are they going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And and I don't know that we were suddenly we might see a very dramatic response that nobody anticipated, or they may just stick with the slow grind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What would you, would you want to guess? No. <laughs> Okay, you don't have to. I I don't either. Um, you know, talking about things that we might never know. Uh, I thought it was funny actually, and I didn't realize until now how funny it is. But I, a headline caught my eye earlier today about uh, after it's something like after six months, the tide of the war turns against Russia, and I just thought, well. Wait, what have you been telling us for the last six months? I thought for the last six months, Ukraine has been winning the war. Now you tell us they've been losing, but the tide is turning. Uh, and that sort of brings us to this this idea of um, th- who is suffering, who is suffering more losses, right? The Western media would like us to believe that the Russian military has been decimated by this war and that in six months, 80,000 Russian troops have been killed or wounded, while only 9,000 Ukrainian troops have been killed. Uh, Is there any way of having a a sense of the real number of casualties on either side? And and also, you know, how important is it? It, I I think certainly the number of casualties is important to the Ukrainian side, because I do think that they are suffering tremendous losses. Certainly the Russians suffered some losses during the initial thrusts of the campaign that, as as they say, shaped the battlefield for the Ukrainians to defend Kiev and so forth. But uh, I, I don't. I don't think that that's really a, a problem on the Russian side. I think. I think the real proof of the pudding is what's happening in terms of the territorial control. That we see that the so-called uh, so-called um, uh, Kherson offensive from Ukraine did not materialize, and I don't think it will. The Russians, quite to the contrary, are advancing toward Nikolaev. I think that means they're going to approach uh, uh, Transnistria. And then, um, you know, then Odessa is going to fall. I mean, I think this is moving along pretty much predictably. predictably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, we, we had yesterday General Barry McCaffrey saying the Ukrainians are demoralized and short on both weapons and ammunition. And so, again, you think what is true, right? Is the tide turning or not? If Ukrainians are short on uh, weapons and ammunition, I mean, that would sort of seem to point the finger back at the United States. Uh, but I think I agree that all signs seem to point toward a war that is just going to drag on and on. And, you know, ultimately, it feels like 
feels like that is that's going to be a, pro- a bigger problem for Russia, right? Because it, it you know it, it's in in the midst of fighting this war is also trying to you know d- develop uh, its own trading network and you know de- develop relationships with China, maintain these relationships with Turkey, develop relationships with uh, with Africa. Uh, but in order to be a uh, desirable partner, right, you you have to have an economy that's still that's still functional. So I wonder what you think. You know. It doesn't seem like it's necessarily in Russia's interest to allow this war to go on forever. No, I, I disagree. Uh, mm. I don't think it will go on forever, but I think we will see some fairly dramatic changes in the next uh, month or two in terms of the complete collapse of the Donbass front and really putting Ukraine in a position where militarily it would be pretty clear everybody that the jig is up. But nonetheless, their Western sponsors will keep them fighting, keep them dying. Mm-hmm. The Russians. In the meantime, I don't think it's the Russian economy that's in trouble. It's the European economy that's in trouble, and I think I think that's going to become increasingly clear mm-hmm. as winter sets in. Where it's not the Russian counter sanctions, which really have not amounted to anything at this point. They they haven't even begun to fight mm-hmm. economic front. It's been basically self inflicted wounds of the Western sanctions. You know, shutting down. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the Russian oil exports to 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 Europe, and uh, with their own sanctions, but they which they then are constrained to try to violate themselves mm-hmm. in order to try to get the Russian energy back online. I think quite to the contrary, the Russians are watching this slowly, not only as the Ukrainian state crumbles, but as NATO and the European Union are looking increasingly shaky, and what they see is a kind of a, a congealing of a Ukraine uh, of a Eurasian uh, alternative to mm-hmm. the West institutions and more and more countries, especially in the global south, drift in their direction. I think I think this long, slow, painful vivisection of, of the Western camp is actually in Russia's interest. True. You know, I do think it, it's hard. It, this war has such uh, huge ramifications that it can be very difficult to keep them all in your sights. Right. And so you can focus on one and you imagine that, you know, this this one entity is suffering in a vacuum. But of course it isn't. Right. And we had the Belgian uh, leadership saying uh, Europe should be prepared for perhaps a decade of difficult winters, right? An energy crisis lasting a decade. So I think I think you're right. This, uh, you know, the the pain is not going to be felt by one party alone. I, I want to ask about diplomacy. Uh, a Russian diplomat said yesterday there's no chance for a negotiated settlement in this conflict. Uh, Zelensky said last week that a negotiated settlement would be possible, but only if Russia withdraws from both Crimea and the Donbass, which is not going to happen. We had the U.N. secretary general and the Turkish president in the region last week to talk about uh, diplomacy along with grain shipments. They pretty much left empty handed. But. It does seem like, at least on the issue of Zaporizhia, uh, there is an understanding that will pave the way for IAEA inspectors to get to the plant. And so, you know, on one hand, we do keep coming up empty when it comes to a political settlement. But on these very narrow issues of of grain shipments through the Black Sea, of, uh, you know, probably in the near future getting inspector, inspectors into that nuclear plant, um, you know, we, we can still there are still areas where these parties can come to some kind of agreement and maintain it. So do these small steps keep open the possibility of a breakthrough or uh, should people really not hold their breath for a political settlement here? Uh, don't hold your breath. There'll be no political settlement. And as far as the grain shipments, again, it illustrates the uh, the catbird position that Erdogan is sitting in because he was the, the kind of the key man in uh, in negotiating that and the kind of leverage that Turkey has. But also, I, you know, I don't think these small steps add up to much of anything. As far as the inspectors going to Zaporozhia, yeah, I hope 
they could do do their work impartially. We know how, for example, how um, skewed some of these international bodies have become. The way they, for example, treated some of the allegations of chemical weapons in in Syria. Mm-hmm. Hope they will do their job honestly. I guess we'll find out. Um, but as far as the big picture, as you recall, there was an interview with a, I think, a deputy head of the uh, Russian mission of the UN the other day. He says nobody talks to them. It's, I mean, nobody, at least from the Western camp, talks to them. They talk to the people from the other countries that are sort of in, in, uncommitted. Uh, that there is no, what is it? Uh, Blinken talked to Lavrov for the first time the other day about this Griner thing for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. For the first time in six months. That's what they've got to talk about. Yeah. The world's on the edge of possibly a nuclear war. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, is that the Russians don't have anybody to talk to on the Western side. And frankly, I'm not sure it would make any difference if they did, given that there are people who are, as they say, non-agreement agreement capable. Mm-hmm. People who are not capable, just because of the quality of the human materials involved, mm-hmm. to tell the truth, mm-hmm. in, in reaching any kind of normal agreement, and even if they did, they can't be trusted to keep it. Mm-hmm. I don't see any prospect for a negotiated solution. I think what's going to happen is that the the uh, the chips will fall where they may militarily. The Russians will dictate terms at some point. There probably will be some kind of a change in government in Kiev, you know, maybe a military coup or something like that, and somebody will come to power to say, that's it. We're throwing in the towel. Um, you, you know, they're, they're going to come, come to terms on Russian terms, mm-hmm. or there will be no Ukrainian state left at all. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And of course, you know, what, uh, Ukraine's chips depend really very much on on the U.S. mood and the U.S. sort of appetite for for continuing to fund this effort. And so I wonder if you can tell us, you know, what, what is the mood on Capitol Hill toward uh, these d- never ending aid packages? Right. We keep seeing 500 million here, 700 million there. I think the total now is I think the most recent I number this number I saw was about 10 billion, uh, which does not seem sustainable over the long term, uh, although I have not seen a lot of um, political disagreement in high places about this support. But is it under the surface at all or is uh, Capitol Hill still really on board with sending Ukraine, you know, whatever they want in whatever amount they want? As far as I can tell, they're still overwhelmingly in cloud cuckoo land up there. I mean, they, uh, the Democrats uh, uniformly, the Republicans have a few, you know, kind of America first dissenters on the right, but they don't count for much either. The Republican leadership is essentially where the Democrats are and only faulting Biden for not doing even more than he's doing. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, it's, it's the same problem we've had for a long time, Michelle. When it comes to all these wars, all these these adventures that have nothing to do with the prosperity and safety of the American people, there's always money to be found. Yeah. In terms of actually, oh, but rebuilding the infrastructure of this country, for example, or anything having to do with the American people. Oh, gosh, you know, we really just can't afford that now. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think I mean, I think they're going to lose the public on this a lot sooner than they're going to lose politicians who who can grandstand and talk about defending democracy. Um, Let me ask you one domestic question. Let me ask you about Donald Trump. The New York Times today was reporting that, according to their sources, the former president left the White House with something like 300 documents that had been marked as classified. This amount includes those he returned voluntarily and those that were found at Mar-a-Lago earlier this month. Trump has now filed a lawsuit to prevent the FBI from examining the Mar-a-Lago documents until a special master has been appointed to review them. Uh, I wonder what you think. What is, what is he trying to do here? What's, what's the statement he's making? 
I think the underlying legal question is to, to what extent the president has the authority while he is still president, and presumably took those documents out while he was president, that that ipso facto declassifies the documents. Since under the Constitution, the, 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 the executive branch of the United States consists of the United States president, not of the agencies, not of the security clearance people. You know, there's only one executive branch, and it is the president. So that's a very important legal point. Uh, obviously, it's going to get hashed out in the courts. You know, you've got the big argument. I think, what is it, tomorrow? No, excuse me, Thursday. They're supposed to release a redacted uh, um, uh, form of the of the affidavit or whatever it was, you know, the document that supported the warrant to see what exactly were the allegations. I don't know how redacted it will be. Adam Schiff is screaming bloody murder that it shouldn't be released at all. Mm-hmm. I guess we'll see. In some ways, this is kind of a replay of the whole Russia game, where you have some representation that was made to a court to justify the actions were taken. And the question is, what were the allegations in there? What was the basis of it? And and, and, and who came up with them? Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think we've begun to see what the real uh, meat at the at the heart of this. Uh, raid on Mar-a-Lago was. No, it will be really interesting to see how redacted that that release is later this week. That was Jim Jatras. He's a former U.S. diplomat and a former senior foreign policy advisor to the Senate Republican leadership. Jim, always great to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back to talk lithium mining and where all this mining waste goes. Stay tuned here. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we will be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte, and I want to talk for a couple minutes about uh, what happens to some of the nasty waste that is produced by uh, extraction, including the kind of extraction that is going to have to help support this uh, green revolution if we ever get around to a, to a Green New Deal. I also want to talk about some of the projects uh, that would be part of that Green New Deal and get an update on the people or from the people who are resisting them. Uh, We are joined for this conversation by Max Wilbert. He's an organizer, writer, and wilderness guide, and the author of the book, Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It. Max, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, I want to talk about waste first, and then I want to get an update on Thacker Pass. But the Washington Post last week had an interesting story about inequality in waste disposal from extraction projects. Uh, And I wanted to ask you about the larger picture that it points to. This particular story is about the Tennessee Valley Authority's plan to truck millions of tons of contaminated coal ash through South Memphis for about the next decade and dump it in a landfill there. The coal ash had been piling up elsewhere in giant pits that threatened a crucial underground aquifer that supplies Memphis's water and that of other southern areas. So now they're going to move it from there, from threatening the water, to another area that already suffers from a great deal of industrial pollution. It has some of the dirtiest air in Tennessee, according to the Washington Post, with ozone and particulate uh, matter measurements way past what the EPA continu- uh, considers to be safe. It has abnormally high rates of cancer. Uh, it is also a largely black and brown community. 
And they had only recently fended off efforts to run an oil pipeline through South Memphis, uh, putting up a fight in an area the pipeline operators had thought would be a point of least resistance, which seems to be a quote from a pipeline operator that galvanized a lot of people. And so I wanted to ask, you know, with this as a jumping off point, what happens to the waste that is generated by mining and other industrial extraction and, and whose neighborhoods tend to be sacrificed to that waste? Well, it's a good question. And the reality is that the mining industry is one of the most polluting industries on the planet. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of material inside the earth that is toxic to people when it's brought up in the, the stones and the clay and the soil is dug up and crushed and that dust is released into the air. Uh, you have rain falling and so on. It gets into the water, the groundwater, the streams, the lakes, eventually the ocean, of course. So, you know, these things include, you know, mercury, arsenic, magnesium, antimony, uh, thallium, different, um, different radioactive compounds as well. And mining produces a huge quantity of this type of waste. Uh, it, at a place like Thacker Pass, the lithium in the soil is found out of concentrations of between 2,000 and 9,000 parts per million, which means to get one pound of lithium, you need to mine 500 pounds or more of, of ore out of the ground. And then you pull out the lithium through the extraction process, which is in itself toxic, and you're left with all this waste mm -hmm. that's left behind. So that is unfortunately the case all around the world and in all kinds of mining operations, not just lithium, not just coal. Uh, it's happening at uh, you know iron ore mines in the Amazon basin in Brazil, it's happening at nickel mines in Russia, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 it's happening throughout the United States. And so often it is the poor and otherwise you know oppressed communities who who bear the brunt of this. These mines are not built in rich people's communities, mm -hmm. and so whether it's uh, you know the indigenous people. And the, the rural people of, of Nevada, whether it's poor whites in in Appalachia dealing with the consequences of mountaintop removal coal mining, mm -hmm. whether it's the Avenki or other indigenous people in, in Siberia and throughout eastern and northern Russia dealing with the impacts of this, whether it's aboriginal people in Australia, mm -hmm. uh, this seems to be a pattern of the industry. Yeah, it absolutely does. And I wonder, in the case of Thacker Pass, uh, where I will note a coalition of environmentalists and indigenous groups are opposing that lithium mine, do you know anything about the plan for that waste? Yeah, absolutely. The plan is to uh, put it in a giant pile. <laughs> it's, it, it's not very complex. Mining industry technology has not changed much since the mining industry began hundreds and thousands of years ago. In fact, there are still mines from the Roman Empire that are toxic today, thousands of years later, incredibly toxic. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you can find uh, lead and other toxins in the ice sheet on Greenland from Roman smelting operations in mainland Europe. Mm -hmm. um, but to answer your question more directly, yeah, at, at Thacker Pass, Nevada, the corporation Lithium Nevada, their plan is to pile it into a series of new mountains. Mm -hmm. um, there would be two of them. One would be uh, more than 200 feet tall, and the other one would be almost 500 feet tall. And we're talking 45 million cubic yards of waste material that would be full of all kinds of toxic substances, including some of those I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. uh, radioactive substances, teratogens, carcinogens, and so on. 
and uh, the plan to contain the, the those toxic materials is basically to put a big sheet of plastic underneath it and just leave it there and basically just walk away. Uh-huh. Um, you know, they talk about monitoring, they talk about mitigation, but uh, you know, people who live in Nevada who have dealt with you know super fun sites and contaminated groundwater and having to to truck in water and bottled water because they can no longer drink the water in their communities mm-hmm. who have seen springs and creeks run dry because the mining industry takes so much water we just can't trust this mm-hmm. we can't trust this company and this is this is what they do. We see it over and over again. And, you know, this has come up in some of our conversations with a nuclear waste watchdog. But, you know, as what happened with this coal ash that is now uh, going to be trucked into South Memphis. But, you know, they put it into these big pits and said, no, it's fine there. We'll just leave it there and walk away. But every time, you know, and obviously they had to then later find a new place for it. But every time you pick this stuff up and move it, you run the risk of contaminating every area you move through. You know, you don't know if there's going to be a natural disaster or a car accident or so, some kind of thing that's going to have this. So the the vulnerability is never contained to one area, right? I mean, this is what opponents of uh, mining at, at Oak Flat uh, in Arizona say. They'd say, one, we don't want this mine in the first place. Two, mining companies always act like there will be one small area that's going to be affected and sort of ignore just how much space their waste will take up. But then three, if you ever have to, if you ever have to transport that stuff, then you just put mo- many more communities at risk by moving it around. And uh, yeah, you, you just create these mountains of problems to deal with. Absolutely. Um, I, I want to I wanted to also just get an update on the status of the Thacker Pass mine, because I know that there had been a couple of setbacks in the fight against it, but it it continues. So, you know, legally, where are things um, in terms of sort of physical resistance? Where are things in terms of, uh, you know, pressuring government? Where, where is it? Well, we're expecting some rulings on the current lawsuits in the next two months. But there's actually been some really interesting new information that's just come to light in the last 24 hours, Mm. uh, which is that the the government's own body that's dedicated to overseeing historic sites has gone to the Bureau of Land Management, the federal agency that permitted the mine at Thacker Pass, and sent them a letter saying, you didn't do this right. And that's particularly related to the fact that Thacker Pass is the site of an 1865 massacre of Northern Paiute and Western Shoshone Native people. Um, The U.S. Cavalry, the army, killed between 31 and 50 or more uh, Native people on that day in 1865 uh, as part of a a very significant Indian war called the Snake War. Mm -hmm. Um, That massacre site was unknown to the government until we, we searched their own records and found the data that they should have found had they done a good job of of uh, of permitting the project properly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the reality is that, unfortunately, the laws in the United States, just like in so many places around the world, aren't really good enough to protect the natural world. Mm-hmm. But even with those inadequate laws, they are breaking them. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation, like I said, that's the body that's dedicated to overseeing these type of sites mm-hmm. and how they're managed in the permitting process around the country. Uh, they have said to the federal government, you did it wrong. Mm-hmm. And the BLM hid that information from us, just like they hid 40,000 pages of documents in the lawsuit, just like they've hid thing after thing after thing, mm-hmm. because 
This project was just rushed through with very little public oversight, with a terrible public process, completely anti-democratic, and uh, the impacts of it are going to be pretty horrific. So we're fighting as hard as we can. We're organizing. Uh, the legal fight is not over. Uh, the fight on the ground is not over. I was just out there last week myself, keeping an eye on the situation. And thank goodness for now, uh, that place is still intact. Mm -hmm. The creek is still flowing. The, the birds are still chirping in the mornings. The deer are starting their late summer, fall migration back and forth over the pass. Mm -hmm. And uh, life is continuing there as it has for millions and millions of years. And we're hoping to preserve that forever. Let me ask you, you know, one of the things that the Biden administration uh, said it was going to do and has in some, you know, we, we saw some follow up with this, but that it was going to make uh, the process of uh, getting consent uh, of um, collaborating with uh tribes, right, with uh, native governments, that they were going to make that more robust and that that process uh, was was going to be more serious, not like just a rubber stamp or something you can skip entirely. Uh, we had it was the state of Virginia that this year introduced new laws uh, governing, uh, you know, who's supposed to be consulted on these issues and including tribes in, in these consultation. And so I wonder if you know, this this news from just the last 24 hours of, of an agency coming and saying, hey, man, you 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 really screwed up this permitting process. You didn't do it right. Do you think maybe there has been a slight shift in attitude coming from the top about the way that this process of consultation is actually supposed to be undertaken? Well, to tell the truth, I really look at the Democrats and Republicans as as two wings of the corporate party mm -hmm. in this country. And I, I see very little difference between them when it comes down to uh, the environment, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um so in terms of tribal consultation, I think uh, you, uh, the Democrats do talk a better game. And in some cases, they do deliver a little bit. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the harsh reality is that every inch of land in this country was stolen from Native people. And that was done, you know, largely through genocide and and all kinds of trickery when it wasn't outright violence. Um, and and this country is it hasn't had a real truth and reconciliation process, let alone a real process of, of justice mm -hmm. um, to address that. And so, you know, we may be moving slightly in that direction. We may be seeing uh, better language. We may be seeing a few steps in the right direction. Um, but, but, you know, from my perspective and my conversations with my native friends and allies, there's so much more that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, I'm glad for every step in the right direction. It's definitely helpful. But I'm also wary of, uh, you know, sort of uh, the equivalent of a paper tiger, you know, the equivalent of of uh, uh, this good rhetoric that mm -hmm. politicians are are very good at delivering that sometimes doesn't have any substance to back it up. So, Right. The proof is in the pudding and we have to wait and see what actually happens on the ground. I would say, especially if the goal is to just say to the mining company, come back and demonstrate to us that you did this the right way, you know, instead of actually, you know, taking on board what what these real risks are. 
Um, I also wanted to talk about deep sea mining, which is something that keeps coming up because I guess the, the International Seabed Authority is supposed to come up with rules on the practice by next year. Uh, and so this would be mining in the deep sea for some of the same minerals that we have been talking about. Uh, this ISA is supposed to come up with, with rules over the next year. If they don't, it is possible that this mining could just go ahead without any international guidance on environmental protection. And so on one hand, you have mining companies lining up to test the technology that they would need, including deep sea robots, to collect things like cobalt, nickel, copper, manganese in the deep sea and signing memoranda on developing processing plants for these minerals. On the other hand, you have Pacific Island states uh, banning together to call for a moratorium on deep sea mining. You have Chile and Costa Rica calling for a precautionary pause. Uh, I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about the just the process to regulate this mining and what consequences you would foresee if the practice is allowed to begin. Absolutely. Well, you know, the first thing I would say is that, again, you know, regulation is inadequate. And a lot of people don't know this history, but the first regulatory body in the United States, the uh, the Railroad Commission, was actually set up at the behest of the railroad industry, some of the wealthiest people in the country. And they actually wanted to be regulated because these regulatory bodies sort of acted as a buffer between the people's anger about what was being done to the land and to the workers and so on. And these wealthy individuals, they legitimize the process. They give out permits. That's what they do. And a permit says, you can do this. Mm -hmm. So I don't think regulations are sufficient um, to, to solve these issues. There are none in place right now for deep sea mining. So there are no protections whatsoever. And if you talk to uh, wildlife biologists and marine biologists who study these issues, they are extremely concerned about deep sea mining. The ocean is the largest ecosystem on the planet. It contains most of the life on this planet. We don't know what's down there. Very little of the life in the deep oceans has been cataloged or even ever seen before. Mm -hmm. And this is really the basis of life on our entire planet. Uh, most of the oxygen that we breathe comes from the ocean. It comes from the microscopic plants and algae in the ocean who you know, are, are putting out oxygen that we're breathing every day. And deep sea mining um, has the potential to push the oceans over the edge. And they're already struggling, you know, beneath the weight of industrial fishing, which is removing the vast majority of large fish from the ocean across the entire planet. Mm -hmm. uh, ocean acidification, the bleaching of coral reefs and the heating of the oceans, um, toxins and so on. The oceans are really struggling. And deep sea mining could be a, a death blow that could could set them into a, a, an even worse terminal decline than they're in now. Mm -hmm. So it's a big concern. Uh, uh, people are fighting it, especially people who live on or near the ocean and whose livelihood is closely related to the ocean. Because mm -hmm. the truth is, you know, as human beings, we need food. Mm -hmm. uh, we need clean water. We need habitat. Those are necessities. Yep. Things like uh, these rare earth metals and um, the other materials that they want to extract from the deep ocean 
Those are luxuries. Mm -hmm. Max, let me stop you there uh, because I want to give you a chance to tell our listeners where they can go to find out more about the the fight against the the mine at Thacker Pass. So that was Max Wilbert. He's a journalist. He's an activist. He's an author. Uh, Tell our listeners where to go to find out more about what's happening at Thacker Pass. Check out protectthackerpass.org. There we go. Uh, Quick and easy. We managed to slide it in. All right, Max, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back and talk some domestic politics and then get into what we should be expecting in the economies of the U.S. and the U.K. over the next couple of years. All that and more coming up here on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with Ray Valencia, talking a little bit about some domestic politics, about Donald Trump's uh, latest lawsuit, and uh, maybe a little bit of what's going on in Florida. Donald Trump, of course, remains under a great deal of pressure with news that of the 300 pages of documents that FBI agents seized from Mar-a-Lago, 150 were classified at the top secret sensitive compartmented information level. Some of these documents originated with the NSA, the CIA, the FBI. We do not know this whole story. And of course, Donald Trump has, uh, has now sued the DOJ to have someone step in, a special master, between those documents and the FBI. Uh, But you could call this a clear-cut case of a violation of the Espionage Act of Section 793 in particular, which says that a person shall be guilty of espionage if he provides national defense information to any person not entitled to receive it or retains national defense information without the approval of the classifying authority. The judge in the case yesterday said that although he'd ordered the FBI to redact the affidavit that accompanied the search warrant, the information in it is so highly classified and could inadvertently identify witnesses that declassification might never happen. Um, In the meantime, this presents a difficult decision for the Biden administration. Do you prosecute a former president for this crime, especially considering there's still the whole uh, idea of who is the the declassifying classifying authority? Is it him? Are they going to uncover that he did it? Uh, do you let it go to trial? Do you pardon him? Do you drop the whole thing in the interest of civil peace? And we have already seen uh, s- demonstrations of some will by Trump supporters to disrupt the civil peace uh, over this. In the meantime, Trump, of course, I've said, filed the lawsuit to get a special master to review the documents before their agents can. Um, in other news, Trump called Senate, Major- Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell yesterday a broken-down hack and referred to his wife Elaine Chao as his crazy wife trying to get rich from China. Elaine Chao was Trump's transportation secretary. I absolutely do not dispute that she was trying to get rich. She's been trying and succeeding for her whole life, it seems like. Uh, but, you know, this is another case of the former president turning around and attacking people who he— In had- his own administration. Yes, yeah. in his own administration. Mm-hmm. Um Public opinion polls show that more and more Americans say the most important problem facing the country is protecting our democracy 
rather than inflation, the economy, or even abortion, which you know could be significant for the midterm elections. Joining us to get into all of this is Eugene Craig. He's a Republican strategist, a grassroots activist, and the former vice chair of the Maryland Republican Party. Thanks for joining us, Eugene. Hi, Eugene. This is Ray. How are you doing today? Here. Good, good. Hey, listen, we got a lot to get into. Um, what we first heard about the F- when we first heard about the FBI raid at Mar-a-Lago, you know, I thought it was just another political provocation and the long fight between Donald Trump and the political establishment. But then, you know, when we heard more about the documents that the FBI did seize, my thought was, oh my God, Donald Trump is in a heap of trouble here. First, I want to ask you why Donald Trump would retain documents like this. He had to have known that some of this was illegal, that it was a crime. His, it, his own administration had actually prosecuted people for doing the exact same thing. Was this for his memoirs? Was this because he was interested in the information? What do you think is his motive behind this? Well, the thing is this, right? He actually extended the penalty while he was uh, president from one year to five years in hope of, like, Trump and Hillary. Um, so the thing is that, you know, Trump, you know, he's by his own rules, laws be damned. Um, and, and that's what you have a case here of. Um, that's exactly what you have a case here of. Um, you know, he, he, he took, the, you know, put the documents and, you know, thought they were his own to keep. Um, and, you know, even if he, you know, is saying that he has a blanket declassification process, um, that's not the process that's laid out by law. That's right. Fair. So you just think he just took stuff, not even really thinking about what he was taking, or do you think he knew what he was taking? Or just people gathering up documents, taken back to Mar-a-Lago. It just seems like he should have known more, right? How much do you think he knows about this? Better. Yeah, he should have known better, right? Without without doubt, should have known more, should have known better. Yeah. Definitely White House counsel office should have known more, should have known better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got legal counsel. And then, you know, second, it seems that nobody should be prosecuted under Section 793 of the Espionage Act. It's been used as a cudgel against whistleblowers, and the entire law should be rewritten. rewritten. But the law stands now, and Donald Trump pretty clearly violated some aspects of it. How do you think this will play out? On one hand, some some Democrats are salivating. You know, they're just loving this. On the other hand, the notion of having to prosecute a former president under the Espionage Act has to be terrifying. And could even lead to violence. What do you think? Um, I think that he, look, I think he's under the being prosecuted. I don't think you get a search warrant. I don't think you get to execute a search warrant without there being um, a level of prosecution coming. Um, is it going to be under that statute? I don't know. But I do think that, um, without doubt, it's on its way. It's coming down the pipeline. What do, you, what do you think happens? I mean, what do you think is the social response by, by Trump supporters to this prosecution? They'll be in denial, just like anything else. Um, you know, they're, 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 you know, they'll be in denial about it. It's just, you know, that'd be the primary, their primary response. They'll be in denial about it, then they'll rage against it. But, they, but then they'll be forced to accept it. I guess I'm curious about the form this rage is going to take, because just the raid itself, you call one one guy. I mean, again, nutcases are going to find something to latch onto and and ruin their lives over, right? But, you know, just the raid on Mar-a-Lago itself I saw somebody die after trying to, you know, br- break into an FBI uh, headquarters and then get in a shootout with police. And so I guess, you know, 
uh, I wonder if you anticipate that there will be more of that or if the raging will be, you know, Facebook posts and some protests in front of FBI field offices. Um, I, I think, look, with, with Trump supporters, you never know, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you just never know. And, um, you know, it could, it could start and stop with protests and Facebook posts about not or it could get very violent. The Proud Boys still do exist. And, you know, their leader told them to stand up and stand by. Well, that's what I keep thinking. You know, if the if the intent of the, you know, DOJ is to come after Trump and to prevent him from running in 2024, not even to fully, in, you know, prosecute him, but just to indict him, to throw him off the campaign trail, I would anticipate that many Trump supporters who felt like the election was stolen is this another this is going to be another way that the Democrats are stealing the election from from Trump and his supporters? And wow, we saw what happened in January 6th. I guess. Do you think that, you know, things could escalate to that level? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, none of us anticipated January 6th. And, um, you know, what happened there, you know, I mean, folks that should have anticipated being law enforcement didn't. But um at this point, we have to be on guard for anything. Anything's possible with this group of folks. Mm-hmm. Anything's possible. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, I can't help but wonder that perhaps this whole episode is what may be needed to finally reform the Espionage Act. The Espionage Act should be used to charge people for spying for on a foreign power, but not for blowing the whistle to the media or mishandling classified information where there's no harm to national security. Republicans must be furious at the notion of prosecution. Do you think that's enough to finally rewrite this law? Not at all. Because mm-hmm. I think once Trump is actually prosecuted, they, uh, you know, Republicans on the Hill move past it. Um, you know, they're, they're, there's already an inkling to move on to another uh, leader, right? Right. Um, and so, um, you know, I do think, you know, I, I, look, I do think there should be whistleblower protection in place. Um, and, and, you know, whistleblowers shouldn't be, uh, prosecuted for, uh, you know, blowing a whistle, but I also think that, you know, um, you know, whistleblowers also, you know, have to follow proper, you know, whistleblower procedure or whatnot. Right. Right. It's how you go about it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How you go about it. But that procedure also should include, Hey, I should better take this to a member of Congress. Yeah. Um, that I trust. So, Mm -hmm. um, I think, I think there's concessions on both sides and, you know, reforms on both sides of that equation that can be made. Great. And, um, you know, as we mentioned in the opening, Trump called Mitch McConnell a broken down hack because McConnell told a group of Kentucky, a group in Kentucky, that he believed that Republicans would win back the House, but they could face an uphill battle winning the Senate. Finally, that's what's pretty much every political commentator in America is saying. What do you think? Well, the thing is this. That, that's a direct indictment on Donald Trump and the, and the candidates that he supported, right? Mm-hmm. So with that being that, um, you know, McConnell is, is, you know, it's kind of, you know, Trump takes that as an attack on, on Trump. And right. So with that being an attack on Trump, you know, um, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, Trump's going to lash back, and that's what he did. Well, uh, but- yeah, it's interesting because McConnell was really in strong support of Trump. And then many of his endorsees as well. And now, now they're kind of in trouble because Mastriano, in, I mean, you know, you've got Mastriano, you've got, uh, you know, you've got the Senate, oh gosh, Oz in Pennsylvania, you've got Vance, J.D. Vance in Ohio. These are problematic Republicans. And Mitch McConnell is saying now these are problematic Republicans and they could lose the Senate. So it seems like 
he's a bit in a quagmire and having to backstep some things. Right? Oh, uh, uh, yeah. Um, he's at 100% a bit of a quagmire. He absolutely, I mean, you know, he's looking forward to being a majority leader. He's going to probably end up being a minority leader. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. He's going to lose his, his chance. I just want to get back, Eugene, to one last point about uh, Mar-a-Lago raid. You know, the the Biden administration has has a problem, right? So what do they do? Are they going to prosecute him, indict him, and then pardon him at some point? No, he's going to leave it 100% to the Department of Justice. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's a part in there on the table for Donald Trump. Joe Biden's case will never figure for it. Let me ask you, Eugene. McConnell also said he uh, thought the Democrats would pick up a seat in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in Ohio, and Republicans would have to come from behind in, in Nevada, Arizona, New Hampshire. What do you think? you agree with that analysis? I think Democrats hold all six of those seats. All six? Seven. All six of them, yep. Right. I also think that Joe Manchin probably eventually switches parties, um, and Kristen Semina you know, goes back to being a back a backbencher. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, that's interesting because there's been this kind of rise of the Republican independent, you know, the non-Trump option. You, do you kind of <laughs> see more of that happening? Yeah. I mean, look, I fit into that category. I'm not independent. But I'm a, mm-hmm. but thank yeah. you. Um, you know, I'm not supporting Dan Cox here in Maryland. Right. Or, right. or, or Michael Peruca. I mean, you know, Michael Peruca literally is a member, of the, a board member of the League of the South. No, that's not Republican principle. That's not representative of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, you know, myself and others have taken you know pretty strong stances against racism within the party. Mm-hmm. Right. You want to restore the party to yeah. <laughs> um, and so the thing is this, you know, um, you know, but but those folks are folks that have been nominated across the country, right? Mm-hmm. And look, it's going, to be, it's going to lead to Republican losses across the country. Can I ask? So, I mean, because six months ago, people were predicting an absolute bloodbath for Democrats in the, in the midterms. And that does not look like the case now. And that's not what your prediction is. Do you think this is Trump? Do you think is this abortion? Uh, what What is fueling this comeback? Well, I mean, this is the thing, right? Um, I always thought that that like prediction was a false prediction because I understand nothing's bigger than the content, right? Nobody's bigger than the content. And the content's going to content at the time. Folks need a content. But what do you do? Oh, man, the president's party in power is going to end up losing uh, control of Congress, and it's going to be this bad. Joe Biden is this, this, and that third, right? So, you know, I saw it as content because it wasn't political reality. You know, it wasn't foreign to political reality. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot of folks say nothing's bigger than the content. Nobody's bigger than the content. And um, that's what that was a reflection of. Talk to us also about Florida, which is having a primary today. Uh, most of the attention is on what Democrats are going to end up challenging incumbent Governor Ron DeSantis and incumbent Senator Marco Rubio. Uh, but there are other races underway. Rep- Representative Matt Gates is facing two challengers. Uh, what? I wonder if you think any of these Democratic winners or either of these Democratic winners have a chance against the Republican incumbent. Uh, And I wonder what you think of sort of Florida uh, in terms of national politics, because it seems like the consensus is that Florida is solidly red now. Uh, And I wonder if you think how solid you think that is. Well, I think if anybody's going to have a shot, it's going to be foul damage against Marco Rubio. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Charlie Crist can put up a fight against Ron DeSantis, but, you know, um, you know, and it's, and it's wild that you got a former Republican governor running as a Democrat now to run against the current incumbent governor, right? Republican governor. Yeah. Um, when it comes to Peter, the pedophile Gates, um, you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, the guy has, you know, Trump's endorsement. That, red, that district is as red as blood. 
Um, and so, um, let's see what happens there. Um, do people care about, you know, you know, could, you know, uh, consistent criminal gates or, you know, that actually want a good stand up candidate. Yeah. I had an opportunity a couple of years ago to elect Rebecca Bitlock and, you know, they were not going with criminal gates, you know, DUI gates, you know, pedophile gates, <laughs> a whole lot of things we get attached to gates, right? Oh yeah. Everything's a gate. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So over the weekend, uh, DeSantis was kind of making the rounds. Um, promoting some of Trump's endorsees, you know, J.D. Vance, uh, uh, Kerry Lake in Arizona, and Mastriano in Pennsylvania. Does it seem like DeSantis is trying to be Trump in a way to thwart some of the Trump supporters? Is he being shrewd ahead of any type of announcement that Trump might make to try to run in 2024? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, he's already making his rounds. He's preparing. Um, I mean, you know, he's preparing for a run. Um, now, you know, the question is, can conservative world, you know, prevent a clash between him and Trump? Um, and, you know, if him and Trump split that little, that base, you know, does a third, does a third candidate emerge, right? Um, because the question then becomes, hey, you know, DeSantis can't, you know, um, you know, you know, Trump's not going to bow out. And if DeSantis jumps in, he's not going to bow out. So there's a third, you know, option emerge and, um, you know, slide into that, 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 um, that nomination. Well, that would really split the party, though, wouldn't it? And that would be kind of a losing proposition for the Republicans. It would, but the thing is this, right? Republicans aren't going to go out and vote for a Democrat. Mm. Democrats are crossover, but Republicans are just so staunch and things that they very, very, very rarely will cross over. They might stay home. Right. They'll just not show up. Oh. Yeah. Right. Like in Alabama, they didn't show up for Roy Moore, and that's how Doug Jones won in a very red state on a special election. The Georgia runoff, you know. Yeah. Like the, you know, two Democrat senators, so. So another thing I keep thinking about, you know, Trump's uh, endorsees, what if they lose? You know, they lose in the midterms. Are, are the Republicans going to blame Trump? Uh, no, no, they absolutely will not. They absolutely will not blame Trump. Um, they don't have the balls to blame Trump. Um, you know, they don't have the balls. Do you have to drop because, you know, one more time, <laughs> the, the loudest part of the room is still the loudest part of the room. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, when the loudest part of the room is the one that's setting the tone for everything. Yeah, they, they absolutely are not going to, you know, do what's necessary and, and put, point the finger where it's absolutely necessary. I want to ask about these attacks on uh, Elaine Chao, crazy Elaine Chao. Uh, Trump has said now that her family is corrupt. Uh, her family's gotten rich by dealing with the Chinese. He has eviscerated other senior officials, including his former secretaries of state, uh, secretary of defense, a bunch of national security advisors. Elaine Chao is just the latest. Uh, and so, you know, I mean— <laughs> I'm going to ask you why he does this. I think we know it's because it doesn't matter. He's petty. He's mean. And he knows it's not going to stick to him. But does it eventually does it eventually stick to him? Is there do you feel like there's somebody who who he shouldn't pick a fight with in in the Republican Party? Yeah, but, you know, and that, but that's at the donor level, right? What they got to learn about Trump, you know, we keep going back to nothing's bigger than the content. Mm-hmm. Oh, Trump's playbook has always been, all right, you wake some truth up about me. I'm going to turn the content about you. You know, that was, that was always, that was his Twitter game. You know, he would take a serious topic and then before you know it, all right, boom, you know, I'm just going to make jokes out of this and then we're going to keep pushing and keep moving. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, um, you know, when it comes to Lane Child, I mean, Lane Child, somebody that served in multiple Republican administrations at the secretary level or close to it. 
I mean, a husband's, you know, you know, I got my own gripes for Mitch McConnell, but nevertheless, one of the longest serving members of the United States Senate, um, you know, pretty much guided the Republican Party to some dark times for the Republican Party. So, you know, you know, for Trump to, you know, make these, you know, xenophobic, racist attacks on Elaine Powell, and that's crazy is that, you know, folk in the Republican Party would still come back and say the guy's not racist. But yeah, you know, he's it's, 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 mm playbook, you know, you know, he, you know, so dabbing is xenophobia, dabbing a racism, make it all some content because to him, you know, that, that's what matters. I also wanted to ask about uh, these new polls. I'm seeing one on NBC. Vanity Fair is reporting on them that uh, concern about the U.S. democracy is actually overtaking things like the cost of living and jobs in the economy, which is pretty surprising, actually, uh, after uh, having the economy inflation uh, at the top of voters' minds. This would seem to bode well for Democrats if it continues uh, for the next couple of months. Uh, do you think, what do you think? Is this temporary? Is this concern going to last? And and also, like, if people are so concerned, does feel like at some point you got to do something, right, to alleviate these concerns. So what, is, what does this mean for the midterms? Well, look, the thing is this, right? While inflation is high, unemployment in many, in many places is under 4%, in some places under 3%, right? Anybody that wants a job can grab a job. Um, I mean, this is a, you know, a, la- a laborer's market, you know. Um, so, so while there's some economic pressures on the price of things, there's other economic pressures where, you know, folk are able to, you know, have the level of employment that they want and that they may be seeking. Um, and, and the other thing is this, right? The more Trump reemerges, the more people are going to remind of January 6th um, and, uh, and everything that came with that and the other violence that came with that, the Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know the other white domestic terrorists. I mean, those are those are things that are going to be in forefront of people's minds. Um, you know, the threats to, to to popular members of Congress. Those are things that are in forefront of people's minds. So, so yeah, democracy is at risk. And folks saw what came with the Trump years from day one. I mean, from asshole countries to the Muslim ban. And these are things that people will be reminded of. You know, definitely in the midterm, but absolutely in twenty twenty four. So, Eugene, while I have you, I just have one more question for you. Um, you know, we live in this post-Roe v. Wade world, and it's been pretty—I mean, Republicans have been pretty consistent with saying that they're pro-life. But now the devil is in the details now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned. And, like, for an example, DeSantis is kind of quiet when asked about how he feels, what he's going to do, uh, you know, if he's reelected governor. Right now it's a 15-week ban. After 15 weeks, there's a ban on abortion. Do you think uh, Republicans are going to kind of coalesce and come around a more, you know, less severe approach to how they're dealing with abortion? I understand the state houses are much more red, much more more conservative than the governors. Uh, but it seems like Republicans are going to have to address this and come to some kind of an agreement about it. Well, the thing is this, right? What it's going to come down to is Democrats hold the House. If Democrats hold the House and um, Democrats pick up one more seat in the Senate, then Roe v. Wade's codifying the law forever. Point blank, period. Um, that's, what it's, that's, that's what it's going to come down to. Whatever happens at that point, that doesn't matter. Because it would be federal law at that point. Um, well, it might be longer than that, because I would imagine that the Supreme Court, like if the uh, Senate and the House tried to pass a law that they deemed to be unconstitutional, They'll overturn that as well, right? I mean, there's that risk. So it would mean 
having enough Democrats in the Senate. It was it was never written. In yeah. Law. Yeah. It was it was it was, you know, adjudicated in a court. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a difference between, you know, Congress passing a law and the courts deeming something by adjudication. Right. Um, part of the argument was that it was never written into law, that this became a Tenth Amendment issue. Um, and so, you know, if, if, if Congress ends up passing a, passing a law that codifies Roe versus Wade in the federal law um, by statute, you know, the supremacy, it's a supremacy clause issue, not a Tenth Amendment issue. Mm. That was Republican strategist, grassroots activist, and former vice chair of the Maryland Republican Party, Eugene Craig. Thanks for joining us Thank today, you, Eugene. Eugene. Thank you. Love you guys. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back to get into some more economic news and uh, and some breaking news, both about Ukraine and about student debt in the U.S. So sit tight. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte, and I want to talk about what is going on in the economies of the United States and Europe. Joining me for this is Dr. Jack Rasmus. He's an economist, radio show host, and author of The Scourge of Neoliberalism, U.S. Economic Policy from Reagan to Trump. Jack, thanks for joining us again. My pleasure. Let's talk about Europe first. Uh, we had the Belgian prime minister warning that the next five to 10 winters could be difficult as energy prices go up and Europe struggles to replace Russian supplies. I mean, everyone had been predicting that this was going to be a difficult winter. But I think now we are seeing signs that some of these contractions might be um, or crises might be longer lasting than we would like. We had German Chancellor Olaf Scholz leave Canada without any promises that Canada could send liquefied natural gas to Germany to help ease the situation. And so I wonder if you can talk to us about what Europe's biggest economies are looking at and also, uh, you know, how swift a recovery is going to be. Yeah, well, uh, you know, Europe uh, is in a dire uh, situation here as far as energy is concerned. Uh, uh, There's uh, no no oil uh, well, very little oil coming from Russia now, and uh, natural gas is only at 20 percent, and that's uh, interrupted. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're in a, a deep strait here, and uh, where are they going to get alternative uh, energy? Well, you know, to get liquid nat- liquid uh, natural gas uh, uh, requires um, port facilities they don't really have to fulfill, you know, all their needs. Uh, it requires building uh, more specialized LNG ships. Um, in the U.S. and North America, Canada, they're they're kind of uh, holding on to what they have uh, to get it from the Middle East. Uh, you know, from uh, some of those uh, Emirates and so forth. It's going to cost. Uh, it's going to take three to five years to build more facilities. Um, the Saudis are cutting back on oil, uh, so you know it looks very much like uh, where are they going to get this from? Uh, Well, the U.S. said, "Okay, Venezuela, we're going to stop boycotting you. You can send some oil to Europe because uh, we're not sending any more. And, you know, the Venezuelans are saying, "Okay, let's negotiate. You know, we're just not going to jump in and send you whatever you want. 
uh, we want some reciprocal deal from the Europeans too. Uh, there's talk about Iran getting Iran to produce more for Europe, uh, but uh, you know that's mired in politics. Uh, nothing guaranteed there, so the outlook doesn't look very good for Europe. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, you know, energy, oil, and gas prices are spiking over there, uh, and it's going to shut down a good part of their economy and cause uh, great disruption to consumer spending. Uh, as well in their economy. So the outlook is not very good for Europe long term. And that's what that statement represents. Do you see uh, European governments preparing for the social consequences of uh, these soaring energy prices and the layoffs that are going to come if it has to shut down, if, if whole sections of their economy are shut down? I see the the uh, you know, news editors sort of remarking anecdotally on social media about, you know, going to dinner with some uh, Germans and saying, we are going to take to the streets if our electric bills are a thousand euros a month or something. Uh, so I wonder, you know, do you see any signs that the German governments are are preparing for some of these consequences, talking about maybe capping, capping energy, rationing energy? I know there's a conversation in the UK about capping energy bills, um, or are they going to be blindsided? Well, rationalization, uh, you know, rationaling rather uh, of uh, energy, particularly uh, gas and oil, <clears throat> is uh, very much on the horizon, especially in Germany and places like that. And uh, they'll uh, provide subsidies, fiscal subsidies to consumers to try to offset it a little bit. But, uh, you know, neither of those solutions uh, are permanent long term uh, solutions. And uh, uh, people get, uh, you know, pretty fed up pretty quick uh, when they got a ration, uh, you know, basics. Uh, so a lot of disruption coming politically, uh, you know, in Europe. Uh, I just saw the latest the prediction of inflation in um, by, I think it was Goldman Sachs in, in the UK of 17%. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that's true throughout Europe. Uh, and then they've got the problem of the drought and uh, their rivers drying up. So, uh, you know, how are you going to even get these ships um, upriver here if— uh, you know, with energy and so forth, if uh, the rivers are drying up, mm -hmm. uh, even France, which is 70 percent uh, energy from its um, uh, nuclear facilities. Uh, France is kind of a special case in that regard. But, um, you know, if the rivers dry up, uh, uh, how are they going to get the, you know, the wastewater uh, down to the sea? You know, <laughs> so Europe is, uh, you know, particularly in, in the Western part, but Eastern Europe, too, it's uh, you know, this whole Ukraine thing and, and sanctions is devastating Europe, not the U.S., but it's devastating Europe. And I think in the long run, you know, uh, you're going to see Western Europe countries uh, questioning this whole NATO arrangement if the U.S. insists on continuing it. But, you know, NATO is pretty much controlled by uh, the U.S. and all these new Eastern European countries that have been let in uh, over recent decades. Uh, that That's the block that determines uh, you know, NATO policy and uh, France and Germany, ironically, the originators uh, of, of of NATO here uh, are kind of uh, left as the tail on the dog. Yeah. And, and getting some criticism for, uh, you know, the case of France. France is uh, the only, I think, European leader who's really kept open channels of communication with the Russian president. Well, aside from uh the leaders of, say, Hungary and I, I think Serbia. Uh, and Germany gets a lot of criticism for for being less than enthusiastic in its support for this war. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, that characterization is really makes sense. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, um, you know, the U.S. keeps uh, increasing spending uh, for the Ukraine wars, mostly sending ammunition. Uh, and uh, But significantly, the last couple of times, the U.S. has announced almost weekly, you know, eight, nine hundred million dollars. Uh, Europe's been silent. You don't hear any more increase in uh, aid uh, from from Europe to Ukraine. Uh, and we're at a kind of a juncture point in, in the Ukraine war right now. Uh, we can talk about that if you like. Well, let me ask you, just because this was a headline of about an hour ago, uh, that uh, U.S. officials speaking to The Washington Post say that on Wednesday, the United States is going to announce an additional $3 billion in aid to train and equip European, or sorry, to train and equip Ukrainian forces for years to come. Uh, so the the package is supposed to be timed with the day uh, that Ukraine celebrates its independence and also the six-month mark of the war. Seems like, I don't know, it seems like kind of a grisly way to celebrate. Celebrate six months of war by saying, yeah, guys, this is going to fight. This is going to be a fight for, for years to come. So here's another $3 billion. So, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, how, you know, what what does this do to the U.S. economy? Well, you know, we, we're spending uh, 70, 80 billion dollars already in just six months uh, for uh, supporting Ukraine and its economy. You know, the Ukraine economy is a real basket case. The U.S. is kind of uh, keeping the whole economy afloat, apart from all the, the, the military aid that's going on. Uh, Zelensky indicated he needs seven billion dollars a month just to keep the economy going. You know, is the U.S. going to continue that? I think they've uh, allocated like four or five billion here per month for just economic support. Uh, and as Europe, uh, you know, gets in a, a deeper economic crunch here and um, does not uh, add to the aid, uh, the U.S. is going to have to pump up even more money uh, for Ukraine. Uh, and uh, the question is, how long can that go? Um, but, you know, the U.S. policy is uh, what I call Af Afghanistan 2.0. Uh, and that is, uh, I think they really believe that they would be able to pull off, uh, they meaning the U.S. advisors, pull off a 1980-like um, Afghanistan support, bleed Russia economically and militarily, and then Russia would uh, withdraw. Uh, well, that was in 1980. Uh, this is uh, 2022, and the global economy uh, and the world is quite different. I don't think that strategy is going to work. Uh, but uh, I think that's what they're they're embedded in right now, which means uh, they don't want they the U.S. don't want an end to the war. Uh, they want a, a continuing grade kind of a, a conflict to go on for years, uh, in which they will you know backstop uh, uh, Ukraine and Zelensky. And uh, of course, uh, you know Zelensky has come out recently, uh, just within the last 24 hours, saying that. He's committed to take back Crimea. Uh, that means there's there's no end in sight uh, to this conflict. And, um, you know, they were going to have some negotiations at the G20. There was some talk about the, uh, getting Zelensky and Putin in the, in the same place and see what happens. Uh, but, uh, you know, what's going on with the sabotage and so forth, uh, uh, you know, and, and the murders there of— uh, 
in Moscow pretty much has closed that door, I think. Yeah, I mean, to, to come back to this idea of uh, bleeding Russia, you know, the, uh, Afghanistan 2.0, as you say, uh, I don't think I don't think we're spending as much money as we are now proportionally in Afghanistan the first time around. And it seems like this process is going to, you know, at the same time, bleed Europe in a way that's very painful and and bleed the United States. I mean, of course, we know a lot of this money is just going straight to U.S. military contractors, but that doesn't mean the, the rest of uh, the economy and the rest of the American people actually get their hands on it. So, yeah, really hard to see how uh, how you can replicate that without seriously wounding, you know, most of the Western Hemisphere. Yeah, I think history would show, uh, you know, uh, amazing uh conclusions about the uh, COVID uh, wrecked the economies and the global supply chains. And just as they were starting to come out of that, uh, they jump into this war in Ukraine with sanctions and so forth. Um, the sanctions don't hurt the U.S. because there's all kind of exemptions on the sanctions, you know. <laughs> they, they harm Europe more. Uh, then they harm the the U.S. economy. It's just a blip on the U.S. economy. Uh, and, uh, you know, they can spend a lot more, uh, you know, they don't they're, they're not so worried about deficits from spending uh, 80 billion dollars in, um, you know, war. And as you say, uh, most of that goes into the coffers, of U.S. war production companies who just send uh, the hardware over there. The, the money doesn't really go to Ukraine mm -hmm. uh, except for the economic support. Uh so, you know, what, what's going on in the U.S., um, it, it's, it, it's, it's a situation where we see uh, no more social spending, uh, but we see a rising uh, war spending going on. Uh, but in Europe, um, on top of that, you've, you've got this devastating inflation and uh, shutting down because of no energy sources. Uh, Europe is taking it in the ear uh, for these U.S. policies. And the question is, how long will European people put up with that? And you've also been pointing out that uh, we can't necessarily rely on China to to buoy the global economy. And I wanted to ask what what role China could play uh, for Europe and for sort of trying to stabilize the, the you know global industrialized economies. Well, you know, after the two thousand eight nine crash, uh, uh, China um, you know stimulated its economy fiscally massive uh, massively, and uh, it, it never really fell into the 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 crash and the crisis there. You know, it blew right through it. Its GDP grew dramatically, and it pulled up the rest of the economy to some extent, the global economy. Uh, so China played a very positive role in uh, dampening uh, the continuation of the economic contraction after 2008 and nine. That's not happening now. Uh, what's happening now is uh, you look at China and you, you've got um, a housing uh, contraction going on. You've got consumer spending because of the COVID response uh, uh, slowing and even contracting in some places. And you got uh, export sales uh, slowing dramatically because the rest of the global economy is slowing down. So uh, nowhere do you see China able to play the same role in uh, sort of dampening the global recession that uh, we're slipping into here uh, that it did in the previous decade. So I, I think that's significant as well globally. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on specifically in the United States and uh, and some of what Joe Biden is planning to do to prepare for this economic hardship. 
Uh, he's reportedly considering forgiving $10,000 worth of student loan debt. Uh, the latest I saw is that is expected to be announced tomorrow. You, of course, have the likes of uh, Larry Summers, who has informally advised Biden, who is an advisor to Barack Obama, uh, warning about how, oh, no, that's very dangerous. It's going to cause inflation. Uh, and, you know, Ray and I talked earlier on the show about how $10,000 worth of debt is is basically just interest on debt for a lot of people uh, and really feels like a, a White House compromise that does very little for anyone. But it does, you know, throw into relief who can get bailed out uh, without damaging the economy and who can't, right? $10,000 for, uh, for student loan debtors uh, has to be very carefully considered for months and months. It has to have an income cap, all of that stuff. But it was apparently... No problem for the government to find billions of dollars to bail out big banks in 2008. It was perfectly fine to spend trillions to keep Wall Street liquid two years ago. Uh, and so I wanted to ask you both about how we should read this student loan plan, this sort of $10,000 idea, and uh, and about the idea that somehow giving huge entities money is good for the economy, but giving people a little more money is bad. Yeah, well, to correct one of your, um, your data points there, uh, in 2020, when the COVID hit, uh, the banks weren't in trouble at all. This wasn't like 2008-9. Nevertheless, the Federal Reserve threw $4 trillion at the banks, mm -hmm. $4 trillion, and they didn't even need it. And a lot of that went from the banks into investors and corporations that fueled this massive uh, stock uh, stock market boom, you know? Uh, so <laughs> they got bailed out and didn't even need to be bailed out. Um Ten thousand uh, dollars is is really a marketing, a political marketing ploy. You know, I've been predicting for months here that you would see the ten thousand uh, dollars before, right before the election, uh, and um, it probably uh, wouldn't take effect right away. We'll see tomorrow. I think it'll be, uh, you know, forward uh, applied. You know, to twenty twenty three or four. In other words, they'll announce that it's going to happen, but it won't happen immediately. But they have to do something in that regard uh, if at the same time they end the forbearance on student loan mm -hmm. payments. You know, that's been uh, since COVID here, that's been sort of suspended payments. Well, when they resume those payments, it's going to be a massive hit to uh, consumer spending because we're talking close to $2 trillion here of student debt uh that payments are going to resume on. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the 10,000 will only partially offset the fact that people are going to have to even spend more. Uh, and, uh, you know, and like I said, it's a, it's a marketing, political marketing ploy before the election. They'll be Democrats will be able to say, hey, look, you know, we fulfilled uh, what we said we would here. Um, you know, it'll take effect next year, but not now. But in the meantime, you're going to have to start making payments again. <laughs> That's going to go over like a lead balloon, I think. I also wanted to ask about you, uh, signs you're seeing that U.S. states and cities are preparing for a, a liquidity crisis as the Federal Reserve uh, continues to raise interest rates and push the economy into a recession. They're going to say they're not doing it deliberately, but, you know, everyone sees it. Uh, you have said this slowdown will not be short. So I wonder uh, why not. And I wonder, you know, what what you see states and cities doing to to protect against this eventuality. Yeah, the more the Federal Reserve and faster it raises rates, the more likely uh, that the deeper the recession is going to be. I've been saying we're already in a recession, not just technically. Uh, those who are uh, have a counter 
position are saying, well, look at the labor market. You know, it's so robust, 526,000 jobs. Uh, well, that's one of the surveys by the Labor Department. The other survey shows a, a decline of 112,000 jobs uh, and 800,000 part-time jobs created. Uh, so which survey is correct? Well, the mainstream media doesn't want to talk about the other Labor Department survey, uh, which is called the Household Survey. It just want, wants to look at the big corporations survey, uh, the employment survey. survey. Uh, and they are the, the two of them are, are, are telling a totally different story. Um, and if the other survey is more accurate uh, than the one that you get in the media, uh, then, you know, the labor market is not so robust as they're saying. And then you got GDP contracting in the first half of the year. And by the way, uh, I think the, the latest Fed forecast uh, is that uh, third quarter, it's only going to grow uh, 0.86%, uh, less than 1% mm -hmm. in the third quarter. Uh, so if you look just at GDP, we are clearly in a recession. And uh, the counter argument, oh, the labor department is so strong, uh, uh, labor market is so strong, uh, you know, I, I think is um, they're missing some of the data and some of the points. We are definitely in a recession. And if the Fed keeps raising interest rates at 50 and 75 basis points, which it will for some time, it's going to take a, a, a number of continued um, raises like that to to really take a, take a bite out of inflation. Inflation is not going to come down very fast. Uh, and uh, if that happens, the the decline in in the recession is not going to be short. Uh, it's going to be protracted, in my opinion. I, I think next year we're going to continue to see uh, a contraction of the economy uh, with continued inflation of around 4% or so. Uh, they'll be able to bring it down some, uh, but they won't be able to shake out uh, all inflation uh, very quickly, in my opinion here. And that's another reason why I think uh, it's going to be uh, not not short and shallow. Let me ask you also how we should make sense of some of this data on home sales. Uh, new home sales fell by more than 12% in July. Uh, housing values have dropped by a little bit, uh, not as much as the slowing in sales. It doesn't feel like a bubble bursting, but it, it is a change in a market that has just been, you know, has has gone crazy lately. So what what does that say? Is this, you know... Again, people have been talking about how, yeah, this is a recession, or but it's a weird one, right? These indicators are doing weird things. So, what? How should we understand uh, this news about housing sales and housing values in the U.S.? Well, it's not so weird, actually. It's it's quite traditional. <clears throat> what you're seeing is the interest rates are beginning to bite uh, in the housing market here uh, and commercial property. Uh, so uh, we're at the beginning of that process. Uh, you will see. Uh, um, housing starts slow even more, of course, and uh, you will you will see prices, uh, except in select markets, uh, begin to contract even more. So we're at just just at the beginning of that real process in housing. It's going to be a slow grind uh, contraction. Uh, this is in 2008-9, where you know you got a big collapse that was financial caused. But right now, uh, you've got a classic contraction of the housing sector as a result of rising interest rates. And as interest rates continue to rise at a significant clip here, uh, you're going to see continued contraction uh, you know, in the housing sector here. 
uh, and other big ticket items, uh, autos and so forth, uh, will will follow as well. Small business borrowing and investment is going to uh, take a big big hit as well. Is already doing that. Uh, so, you know, I it, it's classic uh, what's going on in the housing sector. Uh, certain areas will will continue, uh, you know, to hold their price uh, because you got to, at the same time a shortage of uh, of housing stock. So in those uh, those areas, uh, regions where you know you have a, a severe shortage of available homes, uh, then uh, obviously you uh, prices won't contract as fast. But in a lot of other sectors, they will c- contract. I also wanted to ask you about this uh, news from a couple days ago that the Biden administration is going to stop paying for COVID drugs and treatment, and it's going to shift that over to insurers. What? I mean, I guess I guess now the pandemic's over. <laughs> we don't need that anymore. Yeah, well, you know, that's that's the rumor going around here uh, that, uh, you know, it's interesting that uh, Congress has not passed another uh, let, let's uh, appropriate money to pay pay for uh, COVID for tests and so forth uh, and, and vaccines, et cetera. Uh, they haven't passed that. But at the same time, they've passed these three big bills uh, that are really— uh, um, you know, subsidies for big corporations. We got the infrastructure bill that passed, that's $600 billion. We got the semiconductor chip and manufacturing R&D subsidy bill, that's $280 billion. And now we have the misnamed Inflation Reduction Act, and that's $740 billion. So, you know, added up over the last year, over a trillion and a half dollars of spending by Congress uh, for corporations uh, to increase production uh, and increase their profits, and we're talking about you know ten thousand for for a, a student maybe you know, and mm-hmm. we're talking about no more government payment for COVID uh, you know supplies and vaccines, which is significant because we're going into another wave with this Omicron BA five here. Uh, fortunately, it's not as deadly, but it's very infectious. Um, and everyone's going to have to pay for it themselves. They're going to have to pay for testing and so forth. Uh, I mean, you can see where the priorities are. It, it's it's not people. Uh, it's not students. It's not health care. Uh, it's Ukraine. Yeah, we're giving uh, $80 billion to Ukraine. And it's these big bills of a trillion and a half in just one year, which, by the way, was about the, the cost of Build Back Better social programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, what the... Biden administration has done is just uh, take the money that was going to go to build back better social programs and give it to businesses in these three bills. That's so sad. That was Dr. Jack Rasmus. Jack, thanks so much for joining us again. Tell our listeners where they can go to find more of your work. Yeah, well, my blog, uh, jackrasmus.com, J-A-C-K-R-A-S-M-U-S, very simply, uh, my latest uh, writings. And uh, join me on on Twitter where, you know, day-to-day developments, uh, I, I uh, sort of make uh, statements on, uh, and that's uh, at Dr. Jack Rasmus. Thanks so much for joining us again, Jack. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back with some last headlines. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C., and we'll be right back.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte here with Ray Valencia. And, you know, we were talking about the housing market with Jack Rasmus uh, just a second ago. But I wanted to... I noticed this tidbit a little while back, and I haven't been able to mention it, I think, on this show yet. In 2021, a quarter of all single-family home sales went to landlords, aspiring Mm -hmm. Airbnb tycoons, and other types of investors. This is from a story in The Atlantic that started off being about the ubiquitous gray flooring that we see everywhere now. Um, But that is up from... It's usually 15 or 16% annually, going back to 2012. So it's this huge jump. Um, and uh, it's oh, as yeah. all- and you know how this works. This is the gambit, right? Low interest rates means that I could buy a place and then rent it out and collect more rent than what the mortgage cost. Yeah. So this has just brought so many people, banks in, but also individuals. Anybody with some capital mm-hmm. is playing that game. Now, though, interest rates are rising. Housing starts are declining. Mm-hmm. And this is creating more of a housing shortage because... Now, you know, the rents are going up. Yeah, and you can't live in a house that's an Airbnb. Right. You know, if Airbnb is all your... And and also, it it takes up the... You know, it zaps up... It takes up um, places that are rentable, right? Because they get converted to an Airbnb, and it takes it off the market for somebody that's looking for a longer-term place to live. Mm -hmm. Uh, In some states, this number was way higher. 33% in Georgia, 31% in Arizona, 30% in Nevada... It also notes, unsurprisingly, uh, this is from the Pew Research that that story was based on, investor ownership began to grow after the Great Recession of 2008-2009 when Sunbelt homes went into foreclosure and investors snapped them up. So, yeah, make people poor and investors make money. And then when people get a little bit of cash, then, oh, look, you have an opportunity to rent and and pay the investor. And in the recession, okay, so what happens? Interest rates go up. Now, people... People with cash can buy stuff, you know, at a pretty good discount. Mm-hmm. They can make offers, right? Mm-hmm. So people with cash are like, they love this. This is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And it's just going to become increasingly more difficult for individuals to qualify for first-time housing purchases in an environment of rising interest rates. And they're going to end up paying more money for rent. That's probably going to be at a higher equivalent than what a mortgage would be. Yeah. It's still a problem. And it's just going to be allowed to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we were talking about Matt Gates earlier. There was news from today that, uh, do you, do you remember the whole scandal, the weird scheme with Matt Gates's dad and the, a Trump pardon and freeing some prisoner in Iran? Well, the guy who pleaded guilty to that extortion plot was sentenced to five years yesterday. Uh, he was sentenced to five years. It was a, a $25 million extortion plot where he, uh, approached Gates's father about getting Gates a pardon for what was currently and remains, I guess, under investigation. Right? They, were, they are saying that um, they're alleging that perhaps he sex trafficked a minor. You know, which again, I will say, I mean, it's funny. Eugene Craig is funny mm-hmm. calling him criminal Gates, pedophile Gates, or whatever. These allegations came out a long time ago, and we have not heard anything, anything. since. And I think that Matt Gates is an absolute uh, scumbag and probably a, a criminal on, on, on many levels. Yeah. But like, you know, I'm not, 
I just wonder where this, where this, when this report is coming, right? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but so this guy who uh, tried to trap his father into this extortion scheme has uh, pleaded guilty and been sentenced to prison. So there you go. Well, goodbye to him. Also, did you follow any of the uh, saga about the Finnish prime minister? No. Oh, the fin- the like hot Finnish prime minister. She's, she's 36. Yeah, she's 36 years old. She's very pretty. Uh, you know, whatever. I'm sure she how she governs, I have no idea, probably <laughs> perfectly competently. Um, but there were some videos that have come out in the last week of her at a, cl- she was like at a club dancing and then par- partying with friends. But when you watch the video, it's like six people. It's like six people hanging out she in a room friends. who have been like having a little bit to drink and they're like dancing and taking videos of each other. Uh, so the release of this, uh, you know, t- terrible damning videos, uh, prompted her to voluntarily be tested for drugs and pay for the test herself. Oh, what do you say? What do you see? She wasn't high. She wasn't taking drugs. She said she was fully competent to lead the country at all times. And she's just sort of said, it's unfortunate that, you know, this sort of private information came to be public. That's very unfortunate. Yeah. Doesn't speak very well of like the six people who are in that room. You should be able to get high with your friends. I'm sorry. I don't, you know, I think if you're a prime minister, you, you do have to like well, theoretically, right? You you should probably be pretty competent yeah, most of the time. Work. We know a lot of them. <laughs> we know a lot of them aren't. But so, uh, yeah, Sana Marin tested negative for drugs, Good. and maybe she can move past the horrors of being caught dancing while prime minister. <laughs> I think we're going to have to leave it there. I want to say thanks to all of our guests today. Thanks to the producers and engineers who make the show possible. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, thank you, Ryan. And on behalf of Ray Valencia and myself, Michelle Woody, thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you tomorrow.